0: Oh, that was amazing. I liked what Dom had to say at the end, because I was thinking that same thing. Is this what freedom feels like? I liked what he had to say. Put my my mind and perspective on the right thing. How many of you rode the Buffalo last night? Did anyone stay on for a long time? No. (laughs) Someone did? My daughter rode it for, I think, not even a half a second. And I didn't get to see it because it's so fast. Uh, But she was disobeying me anyway. She just had shoulder surgery, and I was like, don't do it. She's all, I'm 22. I can do what I want. And she did. Did you get hurt, Natalie? No, no, she didn't get hurt. That's good. Um, I wasn't going to share this story because my husband is up in the balcony, and I was trying to keep it away from him, but... I feel like the Lord wants me to share it. On Thursday, I went for a walk, and I had this burden to pray for all of you, so I put my earphones on, and I just, man, the Lord showed up. And I was on a walk with my dog, her name is Ruby, and um, the Lord gave me this song. It's called New Wine. Have you guys heard that song? Yeah. It's amazing, but also very uncomfortable. So. It says, in the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil, I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. Amen. So I yield to you into your careful hand when I trust you and I don't need to understand. Make me your vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing, but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. And so I just started praying that over this weekend. Actually, that song became my prayer for this weekend. And so I'm walking in my neighborhood. There's not sidewalks in my neighborhood. And I'm really into it. I'm really into worshiping and into surrender because I want new ground to be broken in my life. I want it for all of you. And so I am just, I'm in the moment. My dog keeps like looking back at me. She has worried eyes. I don't pay attention to it like at first but then she keeps doing it but she keeps moving forward because she realizes that's what i'm doing but she keeps looking back so then i decide well maybe i should look behind me so i look behind me and i almost got hit by a car <sighs> and i realize that's what my husband thinks i'm situationally unaware so that's why i didn't want to share this story because it'll just be another thing that he has to be like yeah see i told you you're situationally unaware But I just realized in that moment, I thought, isn't it interesting that my dog was going to go where she didn't want to go, but she was going to go because I was leading her there. And it was a bad, that was a mistake, she shouldn't have. But I realized that I need to do the same thing with my God. He doesn't make mistakes. And as I look back at him with worried eyes, he's not going to get hit by a car. He's got me. And that's what surrender looks like. And we had this amazing time of surrender last night. It was very, very sweet. But I want you guys to realize that surrender is not a one and done thing. Have you realized that already? Because as soon as we wake up, in fact, I didn't even need to wake up this morning. In the middle of the night, I woke up and had taken back whatever I gave to him last night. And we realized that in those moments, we need to continually offer it. I often have women ask me, how do I live a surrendered life? You know how you live a surrendered life? You practice surrender. It's when you pick it up, you lay it back down. And it's like forgiveness. A lot of times you have to do it over and over and over again, sometimes in the same minute, right? And surrender is a lot like that. Lord, I give it back to you. Oh, I just took it. Lord, I give it back to you. And it is in this continual process that we learn how to live a surrendered life. So, if you, like me, woke up and you picked up whatever you laid down last night, surrender it again throughout the day, throughout the weekend. Surrender it again and again and again. And at some point, we will become people that becomes natural too. And it's not saying that surrender will ever be easier. Like I said, every time you surrender, it's like the first time you do it because it's hard, it's difficult. It's something that isn't easy or natural to us, but God wants us to live there because that's how we grow our faith. But last night, we left Naomi and Ruth on their way back to Bethlehem, back to the house of bread. Do you know that that's what Bethlehem means? Isn't it interesting that they left? And so let's pick up our story where we left off, Ruth 1, 19 through 22. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Remember, that's a huge theme in the book of Ruth. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. You get this idea that they really want us to know she's from Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So as soon as Naomi returns, the whole town is stirred. And that means everybody. Everyone. In the original Hebrew, stirred means to rush about madly, to make a great noise. And this is showing us that they had standing in the community before they left. Everybody knew them. And even though the whole town is in an uproar, it is the women who come to Naomi to ask her, is that you, Naomi? And the fact that she is known by them shows us that they stayed in the Promised Land during the, during the famine. They did not go to Moab. They did not leave. See, these people knew her from before she left. These are the people that decided to stay in the promised land, in the famine, under the covenant promises of God. And, in, and they survived. They survived. And apparently they were in better shape than Naomi because even though they remembered her, it would seem that her physical appearance was quite changed by the years of hardship by the grief. And there's really nothing like girlfriends that are straight shooters, right, to tell you that the years haven't been kind to you. And that's exactly what they're doing here, but Naomi knows it. Sherry knows it. And she tells them, don't call me Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. And she tells them instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. See, she's choosing to be known by her circumstances here. The, the circumstances of her life have embittered her. Got questions says, in its figurative sense, bitterness refers to a mental or emotional state that corrodes or eats away at. That's what bitterness does. Bitterness will eat away at us. And bitterness can affect anyone experiencing profound grief or anything that acts on the mind the way poison acts on the body. That is what we're signing up for when we are when we are allowing ourselves to dwell on bitterness. And this is what she wants to be known by. And we understand why she would feel that way. We just read last night about her whole story. It is tragic, the last decade of her life. No one would fault her for being bitter. No one would. But she is making a choice to be known by her grief, by her disappointed hopes, by her failures. Anybody been there? I have. And see, bitterness is like a weed. It grows if left unchecked. And that's why the Bible calls bitterness a root. It will take over your life. And it will cloud the way you see God, the way you see the world, and the way you see people around you. It affects everything. And a few years ago, I did a talk. And I was going to share, I shared the example I'm going to share with you this morning. And my youngest son, Sam, came to me. And he said, I'm going to come and listen to you speak. And normally I like it when my kids come and listen to me speak, but I knew I was going to be sharing something about Sam that I hadn't really actually told him about. So I sat him down because nobody likes to be, you know, surprised (laughs) that they're being used in a message. And in fact, my sister here, she's flying. She flew from Tennessee. She keeps asking me every talk. Uh, so what, what um, examples are you going to be using? Like, is there anything about me? <laughs> and I'm all, you're going to have to be surprised. <laughs> but with, with Sam, I, I sat him down and I just said, hey, do you know how I felt when, when I found out I was pregnant with you? And he said, happy? <laughs> and that's a typical baby of the family answer. And I thought, oh no, this is going to be a long talk because happiness didn't even enter into the equation. It didn't even enter into the equation. And he didn't have a clue, but my husband and I were in a period of loss, of great loss, actually. And it seemed like every time we turned around, there was something else that was being taken from us. You guys ever been there? We were losing a business, which came with an added bonus of a loss of reputation, and that's always a lot of fun. And it was a really dark period in our lives, and we were just trying to stay afloat with three young kids. That's where we were. And it is at this time that I find out I'm pregnant with Sam. And I was mad. I was mad because it seemed like a kick in the gut, like God was just being mean to me at this point. And because I was mad, I spent the first six months of my pregnancy sitting on the couch eating a lot of ding-dongs, hostess ding-dongs. In fact, my daughter came to me the other day and said, do you remember when you used to buy all of those ding-dongs and we weren't allowed to eat any of them? Oh, yes, I remember that time very well. They were mine. They were my coping skills. You guys learned about coping skills. today in the breakout. And so I I was mad and I sat on the couch and I ate a lot of ding-dongs and you know you've hit a low when Hostess products come in. And I was mad at my husband for obvious reasons, but also because he came into the house one day and I was sitting on the couch with my tissue and a lot of foil wrappers around me. And he said, Julie, it is time you get over this. It's time you get over this and you move on because this is happening. And at that point, I thought he was the biggest jerk I had ever met. But it's because bitterness had clouded my vision. I couldn't see anything past it. I I couldn't see that what it was doing to me is it wasn't allowing me to see what God was doing in my life. I couldn't see beyond what I suffered beyond what I had lost, beyond the question of why me. You've been there? I'm just gonna let you know there are two big traps to bitterness. Why me and it's not fair. If you guys are in that cycle, just surrender it. It gets you, it it doesn't put you in a good place and it will never put you in a good place. It's just a ground for breeding more bitterness. It is something that should be instantly surrendered. And a truth we need to remember is that even in loss, God is still working. We talked about that last night. And the thing about it is that bitterness just blinds us to it. And so when my son was born, he did bring life back to my family. Not just to me, but to our whole family. A needed light he was. Because guess what? We were still in those same circumstances. But he was a perspective changer. He was a perspective changer and we named him Sam, Samuel, because we realized that God heard what we needed before we knew we needed it. God sees what you need. He knows what you should, what should be a part of your family. He knows what should be a part of your life, even when you can't see it. And that's what Sam reminded us. And see, God knows what Naomi needs. He sees her and even though bitterness is clouding her sight, he is still working on her behalf. That's what I love about God. He didn't, he knew I sat on a couch, wasted my life and ate ding-dongs for a really long time. And guess what, he still pursued me. He still gave me a gift of Sam, something I didn't deserve. I was so angry and yet he gave me such blessing and he does that for Naomi. And the the author of Ruth is letting the reader know some things. He's saying, hey, Naomi can't see this, but I want you guys to know something in verse 22. He says, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of harvest. So he's letting us know that God was doing some things on Naomi's behalf, even though she's blind to it. Number one, he brought her back to Bethlehem safely. That's a big deal in the culture in which they lived. Without any male protection, she made it back to Bethlehem. Number two, God gave her her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She has no idea what a gift Ruth is going to be in her life, but God does. And number three, he brought her back at the time of the barley harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest, What a perfect reminder that God, that with God there will always be harvest. Amen? There will always be harvest. No matter how dark the road has been, no matter how cold the winter has been, there will be a season of harvest in every single one of our lives. So, what kind of seed are you sowing? That matters. It matters. Let's not, identify our, be, let's not define our identity by our circumstances. Let's not allow bitterness to cloud our sight. Let's make the choice of faith to believe that God sees us and he hears us. And, he, and let's intentionally open our eyes to see the things, no matter how small, that God is doing on our behalf. One of my friends lost her daughter years ago. And she taught me this practice of a joy journal. And I use it to this day. In fact, I just wrote in it this morning. And she said, write down five things that bring you joy or that you're thankful for every day. Because, and this is coming from her deep grief and pain. She said, there's always five things to be thankful for. Amen. There is always five things. It does not change your circumstances. It changes your perspective. Just like Sam did. In our life, there are always five things. And see, we will encounter the temptation to dive into bitterness. We will, because life is hard, and grief and pain are real. And, and bitterness really seems like a way to protect ourselves, but I'm here to tell you, bitterness does not protect you. It destroys you. And you need to understand that, that when you are sojourning with bitterness, its only aim is to destroy you. That's it. Don't remain in that land. Amen? Do not remain there. It is not protection. It is destruction. But what I love about the faithfulness of God is that he is still working in Naomi's life even though she can't see beyond her bitterness. And in the second chapter of Ruth, we see God's provision for these women. And we're going to read Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. I'm going to let you know that's something that the author is telling us, the audience. Naomi and Ruth do not know this. They don't know that. That is for us. And so we go back into Ruth and Naomi's life in verse 2. It says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come. She just happened to, by the way. Come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. That's the second time we've been told that. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. There's another just happened to, a behold moment. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is a young Moabite woman woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So part of the Lord's provision for the poor and the marginalized in ancient Israel was this whole idea of gleaning. And it was actually built into his law in Leviticus 19. And the landowners that owned all of these fields and crops, they were not to harvest every piece of grain or fruit from their fields, but they were to leave some back. And this is how those people that didn't have anything were provided for, that they could go after the reapers, after the harvesters, and they could collect what was left over, and it would not be stealing. And it wasn't a handout. They were working hard for it. And that is exactly what Ruth is doing. She is taking charge of of providing for Naomi. Remember her covenant promise to Naomi. She's taking it very seriously. And her newfound faith in God is allowing her to trust him with not only her protection, but her provision. And this really is the only provision at her disposal. So she's doing it. She's going out and she's gleaning, asking God to protect her, to take her to the fields that she needs to be in. Because as a Moabite, that was a big deal. They weren't exactly accepted in Israel. And yet she goes and she trusts the Lord to protect her. And the author gives us, uh, the reader, another seemingly insignificant detail about how Boaz interacts with his servants. He says, the Lord be with you. And they answer, the Lord bless you. And at first, when I read this, I thought, why? I wonder why this made it into the story. It seems kind of out of place. But then I started thinking about in the time of Judges, when Israel is constantly turning her back on God, there was still a remnant of godly people that wanted to be obedient. And that is what it's showing us. See, because at the beginning of this passage, it tells us that Boaz is, is from Elimelech's clan, but we are also told that he's worthy, which in the original language means that he had great wealth. He was a man of valor or good standing in the community. But we don't know much about him spiritually until the author tells us how he interacts with his servants. Because we truly get to know what someone believes, not by what they say, but how they live, right? And we can see by Boaz that God had so permeated his life that he actually, it affects every part of him, especially how he interacts with those below him. He's a humble man. And this must be something that Ruth takes notice of. She's an outsider, and she sees Boaz's character not only with how he interacts with his servants, but how he interacts with her. And so Ruth and Boaz end up having a dialogue, which he wants her to continue to glean in his fields. He wants to offer protection for her, he wants to provide for her and Naomi. And in verse 8, it says Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field to leave this one, but keep close to my young women. These are the servants that are harvesting. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? There's his protection. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn, provision. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Just, recent, uh, just last night, I think it was, we were, we were praying before the meeting and Megan was talking about things that maybe should puff us up. There are times that we're noticed, and and it should bring us some sort of like, oh, wow, I was noticed, but really it brings us humility, And, and that's exactly what's happening here. She was noticed by a landowner. Maybe that could have puffed her up, but it didn't. It brought her to a point of humility to where she was face down on the ground asking, why did you even notice me? Why did you even notice me? And then she says since I am a foreigner. But verse 11 says but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has fully told to me. Been fully told to me. In other words, they live in a very small town. Amen. Everybody knows everything. So during this dialogue, Boaz calls Ruth my daughter, which is really a term of affection or respect, not really something she's used to being a Moabite woman in a new land. And he goes on to tell her all the things that he would do for her. He's going to provide for her. He's going to protect her. And she's overwhelmed by his generosity. And she answers, why have I found favor since I am a foreigner? She responds by pointing out that she doesn't belong. That's how she sees herself. Why would you even look at me? I don't belong. But he assures her by reminding her that she does belong. She gave up her old life. She has left her past behind. And then he reminds her it is the Lord that repays and rewards her. The Lord, the covenant God of Israel, that has made her acceptable and part of the Israelite family when she decided to take refuge under his wings. That's what changed her. And she doesn't understand, and again, she identifies herself with a servant, which in the original language, there are two words for servant for a female. And she's identifying herself with uh, being a slave. It's the lowest rung on the ladder, and an Israelite man would not be able to marry a Gentile slave. And that's what she's identifying herself as. And what I found interesting in this chapter is how much it has to do with identity, identity. This whole chapter is about identity. We have Naomi identifying with her bitterness. And now we have Boaz explaining Ruth's new identity through God because she came under his covenant promises, but she doesn't understand. She doesn't get it. And Ruth identifies herself as a slave. Our identity matters. Where we get our identity from, it matters. It matters. I just recently was um, looking at a, I think it was an Instagram reel. So you know it's true. (laughs) And it was a pastor. Actually, it was a young kid. I don't know if he was a pastor. He kind of seemed like one, but he was a young kid. And it was just so amazing what he said about identity. He said, the way you think affects the way you feel. The way you feel affects what you do. And what you do affects the way you think. So it's this whole cycle. The way you think, the way you feel affects what you do, and it affects what you think. And so it goes around and around and around. And really, it's a continuous cycle until something breaks the cycle. Amen? It will just continue in your mind over and over and over again. And then he goes on to explain how important our identity in Christ is because the enemy doesn't want you to know what your identity in Christ is. Why? Because that continual motion, it's a continual loop. You know what else is a continual loop? A chain. The enemy wants to keep you chained to your false beliefs about yourself. He does. That's what he wants for you. And your identity matters because when you know... Who you are in Christ, there is freedom. There is freedom. You know who you are, and then you're free to act in that way. You are free to act in that way, and that continual loop is broken. Where are you finding your identity? And I know in all of our lives, and I'm even thinking myself, there are places right now that are coming to my mind that there are places that I need to break some cycles. Amen? There always will be. But where are you finding your identity? How are you defining yourself? And see, no matter how these women define themselves, either bitter or as a slave, guess what? Boaz. You know how Boaz saw them? He saw them in light of his covenant God. That's how he saw these women. And no other title mattered. No other title mattered. For those of us who know Jesus and are covered by his blood, we are under a new covenant. But do you know it's the same promise-keeping God of the Old Testament? He is a promise-keeper. And it doesn't matter what you have done in your past or where you have come from. God, through Jesus, has given you a new identity. And it is the only one that matters. And even if what the world says about you is true, because let's look at Ruth. Ruth was a foreigner, and she was a servant at this point in her life. So it was true. But those things did not define her. They did not define her because God had given her a new title. It was my daughter, and it was the only one that mattered. Don't choose to identify yourself by your circumstances any longer shed that guilt whatever has gone on in your past shed the guilt and claim the forgiveness of Jesus claim it take off the shame that's one of the biggest lies that shame i love the song we sang last night the the gardens what is that the graves into gardens and it has that line that says he turns shame into glory he's the only one who can Amen. He's the only one who can. We need to take off that shame, and we need to live in light of our new identity so we can break that cycle and live in freedom. There is freedom. And a lot of times our expectations are of what freedom looks like, but that's what I loved about that song this morning, is that it doesn't necessarily look like we think it's going to look but there are glimpses, like Dom said, of heaven. There's glimpses of what it will be like one day because we have the hope of Jesus that we're going to shed those chains. When we see him face to face, we will live in complete freedom. That is our future. This is not our home. This is not our home. In Ruth 2, chapter, or verse 2, no, chapter 2, verse 17. It says, then she beat out what she had gleaned. And basically what that means is that she took what she had harvested. And when you have a small amount, you beat it out. You're separating the grain from the stock. And when you have a large amount, you tread it out. You'll see both of those things in Ruth. And it was about an ephah of barley, which is a lot for a day's work. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She was probably very surprised. And she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied because Boaz had fed her lunch. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is a man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. This is the very first time Naomi hears that name. It's the very first time. We've heard it for a while. This is the first time she's heard it. And guess what she says to her, her daughter-in-law? May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. And then she also says, that man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. That's a super important Uh, verse in the book of Ruth all of a sudden Naomi realizes that God might be providing for them and in this short interaction between Naomi and Ruth we are given a front row seat to watching how one man's kindness melts away bitterness or at least is starting to Because we see Naomi is all of a sudden being able to see past bitterness to see how God is providing for them. See, our kindness matters. It has far-reaching, it has a far-reaching impact, affecting not only the way people see themselves, but also the way people see God. It matters. And today I want us, as we go out, And we get to have a really fun, great day. Even in the rain, it's still fun, right? And I want us to take some time to see how God has been working in your current circumstances. Take some time to write down those five things. Change your perspective. And even if those circumstances have caused you to shroud yourself in guilt and shame, take some time to walk out from under that. Just spend some time with Jesus And have him lift those burdens and take refuge under the wings of your covenant God, who redeems your story and brings life to the broken and calls you my daughter. See, one of the things that I wanted to talk about identity, because I think we live in a world that really loves this whole identity talk. You need to know who you are and and what do you identify as. I'm wanting you to understand that with Jesus it's different. It's not about how much you know yourself. In fact, that keeps us in a continual loop in a negative mental space. Because we're never, ever going to be anything other than what we are, right? The only one who redeems our story is Jesus. And so how do we get to know our identity in Jesus? By getting to know Jesus more, right? Right? That is the only way that we can understand our true identity is not by getting to know ourselves better, but by getting to know our God better. Because how in the world can you understand that you're an image bearer without understanding the image giver? How can you understand that? And how can you understand that God sees you unless you come face to face with El Roy, the God who sees You can't understand true forgiveness unless you understand the salvation that Jesus gave you. Get to know him. He is how you understand your identity. Don't listen to what the world has to say about your identity. It is not true. It is a distraction keeping you from what is important And that is that you have a pursuing God going after you, wanting you to know him better because guess what? He knows everything about you. He wants you to get to know him better. He wants you to get to know him better. Stop identifying yourself by what you're not, by what the world says you are, and start identifying yourself by whose you are. You are God's daughter. That's the only title that matters And he is working on your behalf, no matter what you're going through, even if you can't see it. I want to pray for us this morning. And I want you to go and I want you to have the greatest day with Jesus and your friends. He is an amazing God that allows us to come up to a place like this and feed on his word. He gives us a time of pasture. That's what this is coming up off of the rocky road, off of that really scary drive, right? Up the mountain. And then we come here and we get to feed on him. We get to bask in his presence so that we can go back down that mountain and we can re-engage in the life that he has given us to live, but this time with a different perspective. So let's pray this morning. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much That you are a God who sees us and you know every single detail of every woman that is in this room. And even if that makes us uncomfortable, we should understand that you are still pursuing us and you still love us no matter what you know about us. And that is because you are a covenant God that keeps your promises and that you love us deeply, Help us to be women that can understand our identity in you and what that means and help it to change us from the inside out so that we can go back down to our families and understand, help them to understand what it means to be an image bearer. And God, I'm just, I, I've had it on my mind as Dom and I were talking earlier this morning God, help these women who are raising kids understand the eternal work that they are doing, even in the mundane. It is eternal work raising your kids, and it's hard, and it's thankless, and a lot of times you think no one can see you, and guess what? You are a God who sees. Help each and every mom here to be uplifted and know that you see them. And Lord, as we go about our day. Help us to be just full of gratitude for what you've given us. You've given us so much. We love you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.